Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to Akrak. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we're back with another Keywords episode with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac. If you listened to the prior Keywords episode, you'll know we did hepatic disease for the basic exam, and now we're going to come back and do hepatic disease for the advanced exam, and then our second topic will be post-op care, PACU care for the basic exam, and then next time we will do PACU care for the advanced exam. Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, so it's interesting. These topics, they're a little bit different. I feel like it's easier when you do pharmacology, like you pick a drug and you type it in and query and you get the questions. These are a little bit harder to kind of pull questions, but I'll do my best. And I think they are good and important topics. So if you go to the ABA outline and you're looking at what the ABA wants you to know for the advanced exam in terms of hepatic disease, they want you to know about preoperative lab assessment, anesthesia choice, especially when with the differences in liver disease, so hepatocellular disease versus ascites portal hypertension, postoperative hepatic dysfunction, hepatic failure, hepatorenal syndrome, and hepatic transplantation. So if you actually want to know what they're testing and what's on the test, obviously they're not going to test anything controversial or stuff that's changing, especially like I feel like liver transplantation, they change guidelines every couple of years. So they're not going to test anything that's not in the textbook. So again, it, all the, the ABA pulls questions, you have to back up to either Miller, Stoling, or Barish. So that's where the questions are going to come from. But what they're testing really right now is they're testing about risk factors for post-operative hepatic dysfunction, and that was tested in 2011, 14, 17, and 19. Liver transplant, especially electrolyte disturbances and reperfusion effect, that was tested in 2011, 14, 15, 16, 18. Post-operative jaundice, you're going to see 2010, 2018. So I think the easiest way to tackle this topic is to actually break it down into preoperative evaluation and preparation and then interoperative management and then postoperative care. That's the way it made the most sense to me when I was sure. pulling questions and putting it together. So the first key point is that liver disease is associated with a particularly high morbidity and mortality in the perioperative period. I always tell residents that two things strike fear in my heart. <laughs> One is end-stage liver disease and the other is pulmonary hypertension. Those are like the two totally. patient populations yeah. that I really worry about. And I would just say I totally agree. <laughs> and I've had patients, one that really sticks out, with you know kind of mild indicators of liver disease going into a big surgery who ended up dying in the ICU with you know just essentially the liver got pushed over the edge and failed completely. Yeah. Um, and you know, in talking to the patient's family in the ICU while I was taking care of them, um, it was very clear that they didn't understand. This was a, a it was a, a spine surgery. It did not have to be done. It was a, a re, essentially an elective spine surgery, and they didn't understand the, yeah. the potential consequences. And I think the anesthesia team, um, and I was taking care of them in the ICU. I didn't do the intra-op anesthesia, but I think the anesthesia team and surgical team didn't didn't really realize that um, pre-op 
hepatic dysfunction can have serious consequences. So, it's and really even important. if you're totally healthy, there are some questions that I I found. They're more rare, which is why I didn't pull them. But they can ask questions about healthy people with healthy livers having some postoperative liver dysfunction for really unknown reasons, whether there was decreased blood flow to the liver or the surgical manipulation in and around the liver, it's not really clear, but you can see some mild to moderate post-operative dysfunction in completely healthy people. So, yep. yeah. so there are scoring systems out there. There's the MELD score, there's Child's Pew, which is what I kind of grew up with. I don't know if we're still using it, but they're used to stratify uh, potential morbidity and mortality. And so, for example, if you have a high MELD score, I think if it's greater than 15 or if you're a Child's Pew C, uh, they suggest to consider alternatives to surgery. And sometimes you'll see questions about MELD and Child's Pew, but it's changing and I think the scores have changed recently, so those questions have dropped off. I haven't seen them lately. Um, And it's important to remember that advanced parenchymal hepatic disease alters the function of nearly every organ and body system. So they want you to know, like, kind of system by system, the effects. So cardiovascularly, you're going to have a hyperdynamic circulation, increased cardiac output, decreased vascular resistance. Uh, They want you to know about hepatic portal hypertension and complications, especially like esophageal varices and bleeding airways. Liver dysfunction, that's going to affect metabolism, the synthetic function, bleeding, your ability to make factors uh, also. So pulmonary dysfunction, you can get hepatopulmonary syndrome, renal dysfunction, hepatopulmonary uh, renal. Hepatorenal. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, And those are the questions you're really going to see the most about physiologic and metabolic derangements associated with liver failure. So here are some questions in in that category. So this is a patient with cirrhosis presenting for liver transplantation is likely to exhibit each of the following except, and I will always point out that it's important when you're taking a test to pay attention to those like accepts. Yeah, they're actually trying to get rid of those. Oh, really? They're Um, they're tricky, and I think people read them wrong, and there are a lot of errors there. They're trying to get rid of them for that reason, because you might know the, you might have the knowledge, but get it wrong because of the kind of trick of the question. So cirrhosis patient liver transplantation is likely to exhibit each of the following except. So A is decreased cardiac output, B is decreased serum glucose concentration, C is decreased systemic vascular resistance, and D is increased alveolar arterial oxygen tension difference. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, And clearly, you just talked about how you'll actually get an increased cardiac output, so A would be the answer, uh, which is not correct. But all those other ones um, are correct. I think the trickiest one is probably D, um, but I think what they're getting at there is that if you do develop uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome, you can actually get shunt, so right. um, around the alveoli, and that would uh, kind of lead to that. I think I read that happens about 15% of the time, so it, it can happen. It's not a guarantee, but it, right. you definitely can see that. Um, and you definitely you have decreased SBR and then all the metabolic derangements, so your glucose is going to be off because your liver handles all of that. Okay, so another question in this effect in organ systems is a 45-year-old man with chronic liver failure is scheduled for liver transplantation. Which of the following preoperative findings is most likely? So A, hypoxemia, B, increased platelet count, C, increased SVR, systemic vascular resistance, D, increased serum factor 8 concentration, and E, metabolic alkalosis. So we're talking about most likely. So I think it's like in these type of questions, I would go through and start eliminating like what's not likely. So I would start with B. So increased platelet count, no. So we know one of the hallmarks of liver disease is decreased platelet count. Right. And uh, SVR, we already talked about, that's going to be decreased. Um, Factor 8. That's also going to be decreased. Factors in general, like you said, are going to be decreased. 
Actually, I'm going to jump in here because factor eight levels are the one level that a factor that is actually markedly increased in liver disease. And metabolic alkalosis, it's usually acidosis. acidosis. So that leaves hypoxemia, and that speaks to what we were talking about right. before. Hepatopulmonary yeah. syndrome, yeah. So that's actually what we had mistakenly said at first. It turns out that while that's possible, it's not the most likely because that factor eight, we had kind of quickly seen factor and thought, oh, factors are decreased. Uh, but again, like I said, factor eight levels are markedly increased. So the right answer for this question, the most likely thing would be markedly increased levels of factor eight. Um, so next question, a patient who had liver transplantation two years ago now requires general anesthesia for ENT surgery. Minimal rejection has occurred on a regimen of cyclosporin and prednisone. Which of the following is most likely? A, hypoalbuminemia, nailed it. B, hypocalcemia. C, episodic hypoglycemia. D, increased serum creatinine concentration. E, prolonged prothrombin time. Yeah, so they're asking for, uh, this is a patient who had a liver transplantation two years ago and now doing okay, right? Yes, doing okay on cyclosporin and prednisone. Right, so I think what they're trying to get at there is hypoalbuminemia, while uh, common in a patient with liver disease, this patient now has a new liver, which should be doing good synthetic function. So you should not see hypoalbuminemia. Right. Similarly, with hypocalcemia, you should be okay. Um, Hypoglycemia, again, failing Mm -hmm. liver, you can certainly get hypoglycemia, but this liver seems to be working. Um, and then we'll skip to E, yeah. prolonged uh, PT time. Again, this liver's working, so it should be making factors, and your PT should be fine. So that leaves us with D, which is increased serum yeah. creatinine concentration. Um, and because the patient is on uh, potentially hep- uh, renal toxic agents, right. uh, you would expect some degree of renal insufficiency. Yeah, and there probably was some prior to transplantation. The kidneys probably took a hit. It's very common to see hepatorenal system, um, syndrome in liver failure patients, and they don't really recover even with a new liver. So you're probably going to have higher serum creatinine, and then on top of it, you have cyclosporin. So that leads us to D. Uh, another question in the organ system category. A 50-year-old woman with severe portal hypertension is scheduled to undergo general anesthesia for a TIPS procedure. Which cardiovascular physiologic changes would you expect? Decreased heart rate is A. B, increased SVR. C, increased hepatic blood flow. D, increased renal blood flow. E, increased mixed venous oxygen content. So we can go top to bottom. Heart rate will be so heart rate's going to be increased, increased not decreased. So yeah. that's wrong. Increased SBR, it was going to be decreased. Hepatic blood flow is actually decreased yep. and not increased. And then renal blood flow is actually also decreased, which I had to look up last night. Right. Well, so that confirm. is part, part of the thought. And there's some different theories out there about what causes, what leads to hepatorenal syndrome. But part of it is that you essentially get um, decreased blood flow to the kidneys. And right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I would just say about the, inc- about C there increased hepatic, uh, uh, or I guess the, the answer choice, which is wrong is right. increased hepatic blood flow because you get decreased hepatic blood flow. And of course that should be pretty obvious. If you think about portal hypertension, decreased blood flow through right. the portal vein, and that's a major source of blood flow to the liver. Right. And then you can get the high mixed venous oxygen saturation due to limited oxygen extraction um, capacities, and that's been reported in some patients with severe liver disease. And then there's the whole hepatopulmonary syndrome, which is like its own unique syndrome. And then, of course, you have increased cardiac output. And just like when you have decreased cardiac output, you will have decreased 
mixed venous oxygen saturation. When you have increased cardiac output, you'll have increased. Uh, So last question in the organ systems category, pre-op category. A 58-year-old woman is awaiting orthotopic liver transplantation for primary biliary cirrhosis in the ICU. An oximetric pulmonary artery catheter is placed and an SVO2 of 90%, 90 is measured. And the patient is hypotensive with a blood pressure of 80 over 50. Which of the following blood pressure interventions is the least, again, one of these questions, least appropriate for treatment of hypotension in this patient? A, milrinone, B, norepinephrine, C, vasopressin, D, phenylephrine. And I think uh, that what we want to get at there, and really you don't need, this is one of those questions, you don't even need to know the stem. Right. You just know that the patient is hypotensive, you're not going to give them milrinone. And that's because milrinone has vasodilating properties, so it's not going to be good in someone who's already hypotensive. Any of the other three would be just fine. And as Jed pointed out, patients with cirrhosis have hyperdynamic circulations, and you're going to have that elevated uh, SVO2, and that's why it's not Right, so that's the thing I think they're getting at there is that the SVO2 that's high is just normal for that patient. So that's not, you know, that that was just a distractor. Right, exactly. Okay, so moving on to intraoperative management. So the next key point is that very similar to the preoperative uh, assessment, is that patients with end-stage liver disease have multi-system dysfunction with common cardiac, pulmonary, and renal compromise because of their liver disease. So this is a type of question that you're going to see. A man with alcoholic cirrhosis and a hemoglobin concentration of 10 has an intraoperative PaO2 of 75 millimeters of mercury at an FiO2 of 0.5. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the low PaO2? A, anemia. B, decreased cardiac output. C, increased dead space. D, intrahepatic arteriovenous shunts. E, intrapulmonary arteriovenous shunts. Right. So this patient has a high AA gradient, right, with a FiO2 of 50%, but only a PaO2 of, uh, I think, 75. 75 right. Uh, and so we talked about how hepatopulmonary syndrome leads to the creation of these intrapulmonary shunts, right. shunting around the alveoli, and that's what causes the hypoxemia. So in a patient with liver disease, you know, again, there's no reason to think that uh, they have anemia, but even if they do, that shouldn't cause that problem. Uh, decreased cardiac output, again, right. uh, will cause a decrease in your SVO2, but should not cause a larger AA gradient. Increased dead space, again, will uh, you know uh, lead to an increase in CO2, uh, but not a decrease in PaO2 unless it's really severe. Uh, and then interhepatic, uh, a- interhepatic AV shunts, again, not, not something um, that we see significantly or that would lead to this. So it's really the pulmonary right. shunts. And then also intraoperatively, you're going to see some questions about liver transplantation. So that's another key point is liver transplantation is traditionally described in three phases, the dissection phase, the anhepatic, and neohepatic phase with reperfusion. And intraoperative management of lung transplant patients should focus on fluid and ventilatory strategies to designed to minimize acute lung injury and primary graft dysfunction. So again, they're not going to ask kind of updated stuff. It's textbook stuff that you're going to see on the test. So that leads us to the type of questions for liver transplantation, which is a lot of the intraoperative stuff. So a lot of the intraoperative stuff is very similar to like the organ systems, like we did already. And I didn't want to beat a dead horse because I think we did so enough of those questions, but you're going to see liver transplant questions. So the first one is the phase of liver transplantation where the greatest degree of hemodynamic instability is expected is A, induction, B, dissection phase, C, anhepatic phase, D, reperfusion phase. Right. So they're asking about the greatest degree of hemodynamic instability. Right. So the greatest uh, degree of instability. And of course, if you've done a liver transplant, then you will know that 
Um, while induction, we generally think of as the potential in a regular case for uh, kind of the most hemodynamic instability, or at least one of them, uh, in a liver transplant, it's really that reperfusion phase where all of that, uh, all those toxins, the potassium, uh, the um, acid that has built up in the lower part of the body because the IVC has been clamped is now going to return to the heart. And that's where you can see cardiac arrest, you can see profound hypotension. Um, et cetera. Right. So that's a really significant. And they're not going to ask super in-depth. I mean, there's whole textbooks written about liver transplantation, right? Again, they're going to go to Barish, Soling, or Miller. And if you look at Barish, which you know, I was looking through a few days ago, there's actually just one chapter on transplant, anesthesia for transplants. And of that, it's just a few pages for liver. So it's not like they're expecting you to know everything. It's just these really key points about transplants. Right. So the next question is, during liver transplantation, venovenous bypass from the femoral and portal veins to the axillary vein during cross-clamping of the inferior vena cava, A, decreases urine output, B, prevents hypothermia, C, prevents metabolic acidosis, D, requires heparinization, E, supports cardiac output. So what this is doing is is getting around that f- uh, cross clamp of the IVC. So it is going to return some extra blood that would not have made it back to the heart if you just clamped the IVC and didn't do anything. You'll get more back. So just knowing that, if you increase venous return, you're going to increase cardiac output. And so that in and of itself should get you the answer, which is E. And then again, if you're increasing cardiac output, you should not then decrease urine output, so that gets rid of A. Right. Um, you, it's not going to prevent hypothermia. It's, it's not going to have any, right, right not right. going to play a role there. Preventing right. metabolic yeah. acidosis, if anything, it will, um, you know, not really have an effect. You're still going to uh, have that metabolic acidosis. And then uh, D was what? Requires heparinization. Right. So Does not. Yeah. Right. You're not going on bypass there. So the next question is, and this is the most common one I think you see for liver transplantation, but in a patient undergoing liver transplantation, sodium bicarbonate and calcium chloride are administered immediately before reperfusion of the transplanted liver to counteract A, coagulopathy, B, decreased cardiac output, C, hyperkalemia, D, hypermagnesemia, E, hypotension. Yeah. And so what you're worried about there, as I mentioned, is the buildup of potassium in the lower extremities. And when that buildup of potassium gets dumped back into the heart, that's where you worry about potentially seeing cardiac arrest from that hyperkalemia. So that's what you're dealing with. And that's the most common written board question with liver transplantation is that reperfusion hyperkalemia and how you prevent it and treat it if it does happen. Hopefully it won't. Yep. Okay. So moving on to post-op care for our liver patients is key point four. The risk of developing perioperative hepatic dysfunction varies with the pre-existing hepatic reserve status, presence of comorbid uh, conditions, and the type, duration, and location of surgery. Obviously, if you have liver disease and they're working near the liver, you're going to have more problems than uh, if they're working on, like, your foot. All right. So question, the next question that we have is a 45-year-old patient with chronic alcoholism develops jaundice four days after a cholecystectomy under halothane, morphine, general anesthesia. And I'm laughing at the halothane because they're trying to throw you off there. Uh, bilirubin and alkaline phosphatase are elevated, but ALT is only slightly above normal. All values were within normal limits preoperatively. So again, post-op, uh, he had a cholecystectomy. Now his bilirubin and alkphos are elevated, but ALT is, above, is just slightly above normal. The most likely cause of jaundice is A, opioid-induced spasm of the sphincter of ODI, B, hepatic dysfunction secondary to halothane exposure, C, worsening of underlying chronic hepatitis, D, extrahepatic biliary obstruction, E, acute viral hepatitis. And I actually like this question because I think it pulls a lot of things together. It's distracting you with halothane because halothane hepatitis, which is actually very rare and 
we don't really use halothane anymore. Right. Um, it's also distracting you with the spasmus sphincter of OD because that's such a common question, and it's easy to get caught up with that. Um, so I, I do like it, and it's it's also testing whether you're having worsening uh, liver failure if there's something else going on. Right, and I think what this is getting at is just the most common things being common. Right? Yes, exactly. Right. A lot of distractors here. A lot of distractors, mm-hmm. and what they what they're getting at is, do you know that even in this patient with you know kind of chronic alcoholism? Um, who doesn't, as far as we know, have any pre-existing significant liver disease. He just has alcoholism. What's the most likely reason for jaundice? Mm-hmm. It's going to be the same reason for anybody, right. and it's just extrahepatic biliary right. obstruction. Right. So I think that's actually a very brilliantly written question for someone who likes writing test questions, which is a weird thing to like, I know. <laughs> All right. So the next one is a normotensive 66-year-old man undergoes total hip arthroplasty. Mean arterial pressure is maintained at 60 millimeters of mercury with isoflurane and labetalol. Intraoperative FiO2 is 1. Point zero. Eight units, eight units of red blood cells are administered intraoperatively because of an injury to the femoral artery. Five days later, the patient develops jaundice. Which of the following is the most likely cause of jaundice? So A, delayed hemolysis from transfusion. B, heart failure with hepatic congestion. C, hepatocellular injury from labetalol. D, intraoperative hypotension. E, isoflurane-associated hepatitis. Yeah, I mean, I think that's tricky. Uh, several tricky of those one. can yeah. lead to hepatic dysfunction. Um, And I think what they're getting at is that they've given eight units of blood. um, And so, uh, and I don't know if they gave any other indicators that it might be a problem, you know, sort of mismatched blood, but even so delayed hemolysis from transfusion, I think is what they're going for there. Um, Not that that's all that likely. I mean, we give patients a lot of blood a lot of times and don't develop um, hemolysis from it, but it's certainly possible. And those other answer choices, heart failure, um, you know, hepatocellular injury from labetalol, right? right. That's, you can get rid of a lot of these. My thought actually in doing this question, and it's why I brought it in is I got it wrong. I actually picked D, intraoperative hypotension, because I thought, oh, well, if you had that big hemorrhage, you had some hypotension, the liver took a hit. But I think what they're getting at is the jaundice. And interestingly, the explanation that the question writer gave is that postoperative jaundice can have many causes, but it's most likely from overproduction of bilirubin from resorption of a hematoma or red blood cell breakdown after transfusion. Um, so it says correct diagnosis requires reviewing pre-op lab values and intra and post events, including transfusion, hypotension, hypoxia, and drug exposure. I don't think it's the best question, right. but I like that it kind of helps you parse out jaundice post-operatively. Right. And the, the other thing I would say is that from seeing this in the ICU, the when you have uh, shock liver, right, which is that it's hypotension leading to liver injury, what you tend to see in terms of your labs is an increase in your AST and ALT, right. not, not your TB. Right, and not and jaundice. And so you right. wouldn't therefore get yeah. jaundice. So this last question kind of pulls the first two together. It's a 25-year-old woman undergoes a difficult open cholecystectomy during anesthesia with isoflurane, nitrous oxide, fentanyl, and vecuronium. Five units of blood are administered intraoperatively. Two days later, the patient has mildly increased serum transaminase concentrations and markedly increased alkaline phosphatase and direct bilirubin concentrations. Which of the following? is most the most likely cause. So A, acute viral hepatitis, B, hemolysis, C, isoflurane-induced liver dysfunction, D, retain common duct stone, E, sepsis. And I like this question because we just learned that you can get jaundice from a lot of blood product, and so now someone here got five units of blood, so it's easy to get caught up in that and pick hemolysis. But um, again, what's more... What, common is common and a retained common duct stone is more likely after a, a cholecystectomy than anything else. And acute viral hepatitis, that would be 
just really poor timing, but yeah. much less likely. Uh, isoflurane-induced liver dysfunction we rarely see. And there's nothing in this picture that thinks she's septic, so it's retained common duxtone. And then they're also telling you you have increased transaminase concentrations, which you really shouldn't right. get from hemolysis, right? right. So the hemolysis right. would cause the, the jaundice, but not the transaminases. Right. Yeah. So just to recap, if you're going to get questions for liver disease on the advanced exam, uh, my best guess um, doing my research is that you're going to see a lot of questions about effective liver disease in the organ systems, effect on the kidney, the circular, circular, the cardiovascular system, uh, renal systems, pulmonary systems, tons and tons of questions on systems and the effect of liver disease. Um, they're going to ask maybe about transplantation, especially the reperfusion phases. And then postoperative jaundice is actually not an uncommon scenario. And it's interesting because we don't really see it as anesthesiologists because patients go home and then we don't really see them two, three, five days later when the jaundice develops. But they do ask a lot of questions about it. In the ICU, you probably see it more commonly than in my world. Right. Yeah. So great. All right. Yeah. That was super useful. So let's move on to PACU for the basic uh, exam. PACU for the basic. Um, so I actually like this, putting this together. I like PACU care. I don't know why. Some things we just gravitate to. And this That's is one right. of them. Um, so the ABA content outline, they want you to know about pain relief. So drugs, opioids, NSAIDs, um, and routes of administration. So IM, IV. Uh, I think what you're going to see in the next few years, you're going to see a lot more questions about opioid sparing techniques mm-hmm. and getting away from using all narcotic for treatment and also other drugs like NSAIDs and Tylenol and SSRIs and ketamine for the treatment of pain in the, in the post-op care. Respiratory consequences of anesthesia, cardiovascular consequences of general and regional anesthesia, nausea and vomiting, uh, neuromuscular consequences, consequences, including residual paralysis and muscle soreness, and then neurologic consequences of anesthesia. So post-operative confusion, delirium, cognitive dysfunction. And I do think we're going to start seeing more and more questions about post-op cognitive dysfunction. I've heard like the ASA, they're talking, there's a whole section devoted to this and there's a lot more research being done. So I think you're going to start seeing those questions, but they're just now coming into the testing banks. Um, and then what's actually on the test. So they are testing pain relief, but that's really hard to do because it's not just unique to like pack you. It's kind of in general. And the nice thing about that bullet point is there's a lot of overlap. So every time you read about like fentanyl or morphine, remifentanil, you're really also reading about pain relief uh, in the PACU. Respiratory consequences is a big one. Oh, so pain relief was tested in 2009, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 19. So that's a big topic. And then respiratory consequences of anesthesia. So that includes like aspiration, laryngospasm, bronchospasm, like the real life-threatening and the more common things, that was tested in 08, 10, 11, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. So that's kind of guaranteed test questions right there in those two topics. And then kind of a hodgepodge of cardiovascular consequences that was tested in 2010 and 2011, nausea and vomiting, 2012, 18, and 19. Neuromuscular consequences hasn't been tested in a while. The last question we saw was in 2009. And then neurologic consequences of anesthesia, that was tested in 2016, 17, 18, 19. So key point number one is actually pain relief. So if you're going to get questions about opioids, uh, you're probably going to see questions about duration of action, side effects, mechanism of action. And then you're going to start seeing these questions about opioid sparing techniques. So neuroaxial, regional, nerve blocks, 
NSAIDs, ketamine, Marinol, medical marijuana, like you've seen. So trying to get away from the narcotics. So, right. uh, so here's an example of a question you're going to see for pain relief. A 32-year-old man who is addicted to opioids complains of pain in the PACU one hour after fixation of a mandibular fracture. He has received intravenous morphine, 30 milligrams during the past hour. The most appropriate management is. And this is pretty common. We, It's not uncommon in Baltimore where we are to have people who are chronic users and then uh, especially after ortho procedures, just being in intense pain. Uh, and the hard thing about this is it's a mandibular fracture, so there's not a lot of other options. So this is the answer choices. A, continued intravenous administration of morphine until the pain resolves. B, intravenous administration of nalbufen in 5 milligram increments until the pain resolves. C, intramuscular administration of hydroxazine, 75 milligrams. D, evaluation for entrapment of the mandibular nerve. E, evaluation for drug-seeking behavior. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is pretty straightforward yeah. that this is someone who is on a lot of opiates right. um, because he's addicted to opioids. Uh, and this is not the time in the immediate one hour post op <laughs> right. period to try to worry about drug seeking right. behavior, right? Yeah. People who have a big procedure that's known to be painful are going right. to need different amounts of opiate, yeah. and he's going to need a lot. So you're going to want to just keep giving yep. him. Keep giving it. Yep. I, I don't think the pain's ever going to resolve, but until it's at least bearable. Right. And now yeah. Bufine, I think, is a partial agonist, so that right. is not going to help uh, well, enough for him. And we and, have another question about that, so don't spoil great. it. Great. Spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Um, hydroxazine <laughs> is an antipuretic. Right. Um, anti, um, it's a... Um, uh, an antihistamine, yeah. so that's not going to be. And I know helpful. we do that sometimes. Like it's not to give Benadryl, just more for the sedative effects yeah, to I make think people it makes like people, sleepy, exactly. but not so much for like pain relief. But yeah. maybe if they're sleeping, they don't really care as much about the pain. Right. Um, yeah. So this question, the spoiler alert, is about nalbufen. So which of the following limits the use of nalbufen for relief of postoperative pain? A high incidence of nausea and vomiting. B high incidence of delayed respiratory depression. C potential for inducing seizures with repeated doses. D relatively low maximal analgesic effect, e short duration of action. And so I, I did kind of give right. that away, <laughs> right. uh, but it is a, only a partial you. agonist, so it's going to have a ceiling, right. and not only will it have a ceiling where you can't get any more, but it right. will also stop others right. from, from working, working. so yeah. it's a poor right. choice in this yeah. case. So we don't ever really use it, but they want you to know indications, contraindications. So you're not going to use Nabufin in the PACU. And these, I would say, these partial agonist questions I see coming up a lot. Yes. Um, and they'll ask if someone's already on this, how does that affect their right. your ability to treat their pain, et cetera. So knowing the names of the partial agonists, so you know, buprenorphine, albufine, uh, there's, there's others I'm sure. And then knowing that they are partial agonists and that that will interfere with your ability to treat pain adequately. Right. So here's an opioid sparing question. A 75 year old man in the PACU complains of severe pain following thoracotomy. Respiratory is 30 uh, per minute. Arterial blood gas values are a PaO2 of 70 millimeters of mercury, PaCO2 of 56, and a pH of 7.28 at an FiO2 of 0.6. The patient has a thoracic epidural catheter and received epidural morphine, two milligrams, 45 minutes earlier. Which of the following is the most appropriate immediate management? So I always tell my residents when they're preparing for tests, the best way to actually answer a test question is to cover the answers and try to answer it in your head. And if you can answer it in your head, that 99% of the time is the correct answer. So in my head, I was like, well, you just dose the epidural. But these are the options that they give. So A is IV administration of naloxone. B, epidural administration of additional morphine. C, epidural administration of... 0.125% bupivacaine, D, epidural administration of fentanyl, E, intubation of the trachea. 
Yeah. So what they're getting at here is that he's in pain, but he's also got some signs of not great respiration. He's hypercarbic. He's hypoxemic. And so what are you going to do? But he do? also had a thoracotomy. So it could be that he's like kind of splinting and that's totally. giving the respiratory issues because of the severe pain. Totally. So you want to treat the pain, but yeah. you really don't want to depress his respirations. So you want to avoid opiates if you can. Right. And so giving some bupivacaine, uh, which is right. not going to cause respiratory depression right. through the epidural seems yeah. like a great idea. Yeah, exactly. Give him pain relief, but not have any effect on respiratory uh, systems. And you could give epidural fentanyl, but it's not going to work as quickly or give the pain relief that you want. Um, and you don't need to intubate. I don't think he's an extremist. I think a lot of this is due to pain and splinting from the thoracotomy. And I'll just say that giving opiates through the epidural, while definitely better than giving them IV, right. does not uh, – there is some systemic absorption. And so you will right. still get some respiratory right. depressant effects. Right. So here's a mechanism of action question. A patient has severe pain after total knee arthroplasty. Systemic opioids are most likely to modify the pain through action at which of the following sites – a, corpus callosum, B, hippocampus, C, substantia gelatinosa, D, substantia nigra, E, ventral horn of the spinal cord. And this is, you just got to know it or you yeah, don't, right. uh, and it is substantia gelatinosa. Right. And the other one you're going to see is instead of ventral horn, it will say dorsal horn. So they won't give you both because they're both correct, but it's the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And I think that's a big distract, distracting answer. And then if you don't remember, I also think the substantia nigra, it's like, oh, is it gelatinosa or nigra? So right. that actually have very good distracting answers on that question. And then here's a duration of action question. So after a two-hour vertical gastric banding procedure under desflurane, oxygen, and remifentanyl anesthesia, the chokar is removed and the wound is closed. Upon emergence, the most likely scenario is A, adequate analgesia for two hours, B, delayed emergence from narcotic, C, pain, D, respiratory depression in the PACU. Yeah, this is a great one because it gets at that mechanism of action of remi, remifentanyl, and knowing that remifentanyl will go away very quickly. Now, it's not immediate, but what I always tell my residents is, you know, if you're running a, a Remy drip for the whole case, you can turn it off, wake them up, but you need to either as they're waking up or what I usually do is I wait until they start breathing and then do it, but you need to give them something because right. they will withdraw from that Remy very quickly. And not only can they have pain, which is the answer here, but they can have withdrawal. And I have seen florid withdrawal. It looks just like someone withdrawing from heroin. They can have sweats and, and uh, heart, heart racing and, um, uh, you know, anxiety, and they can really um, go through withdrawal from that remedy. So you need to give them something. It could be fentanyl, it could be yeah. Dilaudid, it could yeah. be morphine, right. um, but you do want to treat it. Yeah. So you can definitely see pain if all you use is remedy and then turn it off. And remedy is also has a context-sensitive half-life that stays very baseline. Flat, it doesn't really totally. go up, whereas like all the other... I think all, most, not all, but like fentanyl, morphine, if you run an infusion, it'll keep increasing, keep increasing. So you'll have a much longer duration of effect, but Remy is not one of those drugs. Right. Okay. Um, so moving on to key point two, which is respiratory consequence of anesthesia, they're really testing the life-threatening ones and then what's the common one. So the common one is really hypoxia, like pacuhypoxia or hypoxia to some degree is very common. Um, it's usually from hypoventilation, but that's a more common one. And mild bronchospasm is more common, but also the life-threatening ones. So aspiration pneumonitis, negative pressure pulmonary edema after laryngospasm, and a severe bronchospasm can all be life-threatening. 
So here are the type of questions you're going to see. A 55-year-old man with an 80-pack year history of cigarette smoking has a forced expiratory volume in one second of 1.5 liters and a forced vital capacity of 3.5 liters. Which of the following statements concerning post-op management is true? A, antagonism of the neuromuscular block is most likely to trigger acute postoperative bronchospasm. B, functional residual capacity will increase during an acute exacerbation of bronchospasm. C, ketamine will increase airway resistance. D, morphine is contraindicated. And so here you can really go through them, right? Yeah. So clearly reversing neuromuscular blockade is not going to cause uh, bronchospasm. We give it all the time, and that's not right. something we think about. And I think actually the reason why they asked that is – you can get some like histamine release at that moment. So you may trigger something, especially with some of the older drugs, but not really with any of the newer drugs. So it's kind of like an older. Right. I think, well, so you can definitely get histamine release with things with like sit, with right. atricurium, yeah. um, but the reversal should not do it. Yeah, um, true. True. And then ketamine uh, causes bronchodilation, right. of course. Um, morphine uh, is also not right. contraindicated. So that really leaves us with B. Yeah. Um, and, of course, what happens is when you have bronchospasm, you can't get air out. Right. And so you are going to then hyperinflate right. and cause increased FRC. Right. Uh, so the next question is, in the PACU, a patient has severe hypotension, bronchospasm, and edema of the upper airway after injection of morphine for pain relief. The most appropriate immediate treatment is administration of A, diphenhydramine, B, epinephrine, C, methylprednisolone, D, phenylephrine, E, ranitidine. Right. So some histamine release probably from the morphine leading yeah. to some bronchospasm. Um, and it's hypotension, bronchospasm, and edema of the upper airway. So oh, interesting. So they're actually like looking at anaphylaxis. Uh, anaphylaxis. Yeah. So then what they're getting at is just the treatment for anaphylaxis, right. which is always going right. to be epinephrine. And this comes up a lot, these yeah. questions where they give you this some sort of scenario that's like anaphylaxis right. and ask you what the treatment is. And they right. just want you to know epinephrine. Right. Yeah. So if you see that, that tri this a triad, the hypotension, bronchospasm, and edema of the upper airway, just go right for the epinephrine. The next one is measurement of which of the following provides the most reliable information about the severity of bronchospasm. A, diffusing capacity. B, expiratory reserve volume. C, forced expiratory volume in one second. D, residual volume. E, total lung capacity. Right. And so yeah. if you think about uh, the, the um, uh, pulmonary function tests that are done for people with severe asthma, for example, um, they're looking at that F, uh, the forced expiratory volume, FEV1, in that first second. That's what's going to be really decreased because, again, you have trouble getting air out. Right. And so that's what yeah. you're going to see. And if you're following someone in the PACU who has a bronchospasm and you're giving albuterol, you can follow their FEV1 to see if they're getting better. Yep. Which we don't really do, but technically you could. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question is a 30-year-old woman undergoes thyroidectomy under general endotracheal anesthesia. After extubation while breathing spontaneously, she has the ringospasm that resolves after 60 seconds of continuous positive airway pressure applied by face mask. In the PACU, she develops shortness of breath, tachypnea, hypoxemia, and rails. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, gastric acid aspiration. B, myocardial infarction. C, pulmonary edema. D, pulmonary embolism. E, vocal cord paralysis. And here they want you to recognize that patients who have laryngospasm can get negative pressure pulmonary edema. What, it's yes. the same as biting on a tube, right? right? So when they bite on the tube and try to breathe in, they create a lot of negative pressure in the thorax, which can pull fluid into the lungs. Similarly, when they have laryngospasm, yep. they're still trying to breathe, but their glottis is closed, same as biting on a tube. And so they can get negative pressure pulmonary edema, the treatment of which is 
supportive care. Right. So this is actually, I just had this question um, for, on my MOCA. Yeah. Um, it was some similar scenario. It was negative pressure pulmonary edema. And the question was, what's the treatment? One of the options was Lasix. And that was not correct because what you're supposed to do is just supportive care at first. Yeah. And it usually resolves pretty quickly, usually within eight to 12 hours, what the textbook yep. says. So this is another um, similar type question. So after tracheal extubation, a healthy 21-year-old man has a 30-second episode of laryngospasm with marked intercostal and sternal retractions, which are corrected with continuous positive airway pressure administered by mask. In the PACU, he now has dyspnea and tachypnea, and an x-ray of the chest shows diffuse bilateral interstitial edema. The most likely cause is increased A, airway reactivity, B, intrapleural pressure, C, left ventricular afterload, D, right ventricular preload, E, transpulmonary vascular pressure. So this is a very similar question. They're just asking more like the mechanism and why it happens. So we kind of talked about it before, but it's transpulmonary vascular right. pressure. So very similar. Uh, so next question, a 60 year old, 150 kilogram man with an episode of severe cough after anesthesia for a right hip replacement. Three minutes later, his oxygen saturation as measured through the pulse oximeter drops to 80 from hundred oral suctioning noted copious secretions and vomitus in his mouth. Physical exam reveals bilateral wheezing. His ABG on an FiO2 of 45% is a PaO2 of 52, PaCO2 of 50, and a pH of 7.32. In the management of this patient, what is the next most appropriate step? A, airway suctioning, intubation, mechanical ventilation with PEEP, and observation in the ICU. B, airway suctioning, intubation, and saline lavage. C, intubation followed by administration of steroids and antibiotics. D, intubation and administration of albuterol. E, airway suctioning, intubation, and mechanical ventilation. Right. So I think here, um, you know, there, A is going to be the answer, which is right. airway suctioning, intubation. So this is aspiration, and right. there are... Various degrees of aspiration. There's you can get like a aspiration, just have like a cough and minor symptoms, or you can get aspiration pneumonitis, and that is develops pretty quickly and is much 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 worse. So this is an aspiration pneumonitis. And what they're getting at here is that unless there's like large chunks of you know <laughs> right. food right. that you saw yeah. go down, which for, I have seen before. Yeah, it's gross. but for all yeah. sort of a common aspiration, you the don't aspiration. You, you, you don't suction. Uh, I mean, you can suction the airway, but you don't no. do deep pulmonary, you know, bronchoscopy right. and suction. Or saline lavage. Right, or right. saline lavage. Yep. You're so just going to intubate, keep, yep. and supportive care yep. in the ICU. In the ICU, right. So A and E are very similar. Just one A includes the ICU and E does not. And I think the ICU is a better place for this patient than the PACU at this time because they need supportive care for a good amount of time. You probably see this, I mean, you're ICU, so the post-op care can be pretty... Prolonged. Yeah, it varies yeah. quite a lot, but it right. can, absolutely can yeah. be. An aspiration pneumonitis itself can last, a, a, you know, two, three days. Yeah. And then if it develops right. into aspiration pneumonia, obviously that's yeah. a bigger deal. Uh, and you can – do you give steroids? Steroids, but not antibiotics. Because it used to be that we gave antibiotics, but we don't anymore. Yeah, we don't do steroids no or steroids. antibiotics. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and albuterol is probably not going to help because it's not going to treat right. the underlying cause. Yeah, so – so airway suctioning, intubation, mechanical ventilation, and ICU observation. So next question is a 52-year-old man in PACU has difficulty in maintaining his oxygen saturation above 80% on a simple face mask with an oxygen flow rate of 5 liters per minute. The patient had a right upper lobectomy 15 minutes ago. Physical examination is unremarkable and chest is clear to auscultation. What is the next most appropriate step in the management of this patient? A, change the face mask to partial rebreathing mask. Change the face mask to a non-rebreathing mask. C, change the face face mask to Venturi face mask, D, change to nasal cannula with 10 liters oxygen flow, E, reintubate the patient. 
So he's on a regular face mask at five right. liters. That's pretty low. If you think about the fact that the patients can pull in room air through right. those masks, he may be getting 25 to 30 percent right. oxygen. Yeah. Not a lot. And so he's still only 15 minutes out from surgery. He's yeah. probably not taking grade tidal volumes. He's he probably not fully awake. Yeah. He had a lobectomy. He probably just needs more oxygen. That right. would certainly be your first go-to. Right. And so changing to a non-rebreather right. is a good move. The other thing that isn't on here, but if it was, and I do think you'll start seeing more and more of these as answer choices, is high-flow nasal cannula mm. would also be an option. Okay. And what is a Venturi face mask? Uh, that's a great question, <laughs> and I'm not. I had sure. to look it up. I, it, it also entrains room air is basically the answer, but okay. I don't. I think it's a distractor if you didn't know about what a non-rebreathing mask was. All right, so another respiratory system in the PACU question: A 44-year-old male had emergency surgery for an acute appendicitis. While in the recovery unit, he has been experiencing severe nausea and vomiting. Oh, nausea and vomiting. His oxygen saturation values while on nasal cannula have suddenly decreased to 90% from a high of 98% at the time of admission and is accompanied by expiratory wheezes. A diagnosis of possible aspiration is suspected. All of the following are appropriate initial management for this patient except. So this kind of actually combines two common PACU issues, respiratory issues with the nausea and vomiting. So we're going to treat this uh, patient who has some suspected aspiration. A, obtain a chest radiograph, B, administer broad-spectrum antibiotics, C, administer supplemental oxygen by face mask, D, administer an antiemetic medication, E, continuing close observation for pulmonary sequelae. And so as we talked about, you don't give antibiotics for suspected aspiration because most of the time, at worst, it's going to be an aspiration pneumonitis, which doesn't get antibiotics. And this might just be a minor aspiration. He might be fine and go home. So yeah, you want to get a chest x-ray, although it might not show up for a while. Pneumonitis can take there is a lag there, unless it's severe, severe. Yep. Uh, you want to give oxygen. You want to give an antimimetic because he's been vomiting, and that's probably contributed to this uh, aspiration. And then you want to do a prolonged PACU stay to make sure that pneumonitis doesn't develop. Right. Yep. Okay. So uh, the next key point and the next kind of topic you're going to see for basic PACU questions is – uh, nausea and vomiting. I mean, it's such a common problem, hands down, the most common PACU issue that we see. And you're going to see questions about the prevention of it. So like using Tiva or scopolamine, treatment of it, and then the pharmacology. So all the different medications, and they want you to know indications, contraindications, mechanism of action, and side effects, especially um, metoclopramide. Did I say that correctly? And then risk factors for post-op nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. The good news is that we will cover all these drugs. So we'll go through like the Reglan and the Zofran. So if you don't get all the questions now, I'm saving some for later. So you'll, the nice thing about PACU is there's a lot of double dipping here. So yep. you're going to cover this again in other parts of the ABA outline. Exactly. So here's a mechanism of action question. Severe nausea and vomiting in the PACU is most effectively treated with a drug that acts as an antagonist of which of the following receptors? A, alpha adrenaline B, beta adrenergic, C, dopamine, D, GABA, E, glutamate. Yeah, and notice they did not mention right. serotonin. Yes, yeah. So they're getting rid of Zofran. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so most of the other antimedics right. are dopamine. Dopamine. And you just, want, you just have to know that. And yep. it's a common question. And it's a common question because of some of the side effects and some of the drugs other patients might be on, which is also a spoiler alert. So this is a side effect question. A 19-year-old woman has severe nausea and vomiting following laparoscopy after IM administration of uh, Prochlorperazine, 10 milligrams, which is compazine. She has muscle spasms in the face, neck, and tongue. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? So as you mentioned, they're getting at the possibility of having too much um, anti-dopaminergic um, uh, action. So this is the same as um, neuroleptic malignant right, syndrome, right. Uh, the same physiology, even if it's not that extreme. And what you want to do, if you've blocked dopamine too much, you essentially have too much 
um, acetylcholine action, you want to block that, and antihistamines right. block that. So, Did I give the answer choices? I did not. Oh. So A is baclofen, B is diphenhydramine, C is epinephrine, D is hydrocortisone, and E is naloxone. Right. So yeah. uh, it's going to be B, right. diphenhydramine, which is an antihistamine but also has anticholinergic effects, and so you're kind of rebalancing right. that right. system. So they say that extrapyramidal symptoms of compensine can affect 2% of people at low doses, whereas higher doses may affect as many as 40%. Mm. So I don't really use compensine. But I know it's one of the it's one, it's available option. and options. Right? I only use it if I've tried right. everything else and, it, and they still have nausea, then I'll, right. I'll try it. But. So here's a risk factor question. Nausea and vomiting in pediatric outpatients are A, directly related to postoperative pain, B, unrelated to the length of the procedure, C, eliminated by preoperative administration of droperidol, D, eliminated by intraoperative nasogastric drainage, E, more frequent than in adults. So I don't do pediatrics. Um, but I got this question right only because I could eliminate the other one. So it's not pediatric patients don't have nausea and vomiting more frequently than adults. It's a similar frequency. Uh, NG tubes years ago, they used to talk about that, but it has no effect on nausea and vomiting or even aspiration. Um, you're never going to eliminate the risk by giving anything preoperatively. It's never zero. And it's, it's not unrelated to length of procedure. You know, if you're doing a quick like tube with propofol, it's going to be much different than a really long surgery where you're using a lot of sevoflurane. So it's directly related to post-operative pain, which is interesting. I didn't know that, so yeah. I learned something yesterday. And the, but that's a great example of how you can still get questions right, even if you don't actually know the answer. Right. So here's a contraindication question. Which of the following clinical situations will be contraindications to the use of metoclopramide as a premedication? Such a common question. You're going to, I'm guaranteed, guaranteed you're going to see this on the test. So A, intestinal obstruction, tremors, hepatic dysfunction. B, diabetic gastroparesis, esophageal reflux. C, chemotherapy-induced emesis. D, patients on digoxin and insulin. E, pregnancy-induced emesis. Yeah, I think this is just kind of something you have to know. Yeah. But what they're getting at is that metoclopramide works by by causing increased um, uh, act, increased passage through the stomach and through the intestines. Right. And so, if you have an intestinal obstruction that you cannot pass things, then that is going to be a problem because you're essentially going right. to try to force <laughs> right. things through, through a place right. you can't go. Yeah. And then they're also getting at the tremors, tremors. which may indicate some, Parkinson's disease. Right. Exactly. So you don't want to block yeah. dopamine and make right. that worse. Yeah. And that's also where you see questions with Reglan is um, it's contraindicated in patients on medications for treatment of Parkinson's disease. That's such a, another really, really common test yeah. question. Okay. So the last key point, the last really the questions you're going to see on the test for PACU for the basic exam is neuromuscular consequences. So residual paralysis, muscle soreness, um, and then neurological consequences. So confusion, delirium, cognitive dysfunction. So first question is emergence delirium occurs most often with A, sevoflurane, B, desflurane, C, ketamine, D, propofol. And so emergence delirium, um, I actually would have said sevo and des would probably be similar. Um, and I think they're getting, they're trying to trick you with ketamine because right. you think, oh, hallucinations right. and delirium. Um, but uh, I would have to, you know, you, I'm sure, no, Jillian, I would have to look up to figure out if it's SIVO or Yes, does. well, I have the advantage of having looked it up yesterday. So it's SIVOflurane. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do wonder if part of that is because we, we use it, it so often for yeah. kids so that the, that may well be part of it. 
So another question in this category is a 95-kilogram, 65-year-old woman received pseudofluorine and pancuronium during a laparoscopic cholecystectomy three minutes after administration of neostigmine 5 milligrams and atropine 1.2 milligrams. The twitch height returns to normal. Spontaneous tidal volume is 500 milliliters when the endotracheal tube is removed. In the PACU, she reports dyspnea and appears distressed. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the respiratory distress? A, atelectasis, B, cholinergic crisis, C, pain. D, residual enflurane, E, residual muscle paralysis. Yeah, so I think what they're getting at here is pancuronium. We don't really use much anymore, but it's a long-acting um, right. uh, yes. neuromuscular blocker, yes. which you can get re-curarization, yes. um, which basically means right. you reversed it, but it still comes back. Right. It's longer acting than the reversal that you gave. Yep. Yeah. So I think E it's residual. is going to be. Right. And that's a common question, too. Yeah. Yep. All right. That's great. Um, So, sorry, just for a recap for PACU care for the basic exam, again, you're going to see questions about pain relief, but the nice thing, like we talked about, is you're going to see those questions when you go through pharmacology and also with nausea and vomiting, so you're going to review those twice. And then the kind of post-operative sequela on systems, so respiratory, cardiovascular, and then neurological. Great. Jillian, thanks so much. This was a great review. Let's quickly turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have anything to share with the audience? Yeah, so I love to read. It's probably my favorite pastime, so it's a book, and I am very behind the curve on this. I am trying to read every Man Booker Prize Award winning book Mm. and every Pulitzer Prize winning book. So in that, I'm kind of catching up on some books I missed out on. So I recently read Cloud Atlas. I hear the movie is a real clunker, but Mm. the book is amazing. Very cool. So good. And the other book that I'm currently reading is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. It's about uh, Henry VIII when he decides to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. And to do so, he had a break from the... Catholic Church, so it's a lot of like the history of England, and it's yeah. incredibly well written. Wow, very cool. Some of those really well written historical books are fantastic. Oh, so um, good. I mentioned uh, on the last uh, episode that I was listening to Peter Atia's podcast, including one where he interviewed Catherine Eben about. Uh, her book, Bottle of Lies, but I'm now reading Bottle of Lies, and I'm going to recommend that because it is fascinating. It's about just the, and you get a lot more information, obviously, than from just the interview that, that she did with Peter Atia. Um, but Bottle of Lies is an incredibly well written, well told story of the insane fraud that exists in the uh, generic drug industry. It has made me absolutely uh, nervous about using generic drugs, at least unless I know where they come from and which companies are making them. And it's a podcast or a It's a book. A book. I'm just oh, – okay. I have it uh, – yeah. I listen to a lot of books on tape, so I have it in my, my, my uh, Audible app. But you can definitely read it if you prefer the written book. Um, so I recommend that. Great. All Thank right, you. Jillian, thanks so much for coming no on the show. No problem. All right. That was great. Thank you so much to Jillian for coming on the show, and hopefully everybody got a lot out of that. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment, and everyone can learn from what you have to say. Also, if you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. You can, of course, also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we are at ACRAC Podcast. And you can join the Facebook group, which is called ACRAC. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much to those who are already patrons, and also those who have left donations at paypal.me slash ACRAC, which is another option if you'd prefer that. Uh, We really appreciate it. 
big thanks to our intern, Kimia Cash Cooley, and to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for their help making the outlines for some of the episodes. And, of course, a big thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo for his uh, original music that he composed for the ACRAC podcast. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jet Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.